0: Aero, your aviation destination.
1: Historic aviation. Hello and welcome to the FlyPass podcast. I'm Hans from Kiero. Hope you're all doing well in these strange times. Um, now, today I am joined by historic aviation expert and author Michael Napier. Um, hi, Michael. How's it going?
0: Hi, Hans. Very well, thank you. How's, um, how's life for you? Well, it's, I think like all of us, I'm waiting for the pubs to reopen so we can go down there and talk about this, that and the other. But other than that, yeah, it's, still, it's fairly cheerful, I have to say. Yeah, so. You
1: know, well, I, uh, surely uh, lockdown must be a great time to be an author. You've got no excuse, have you?
0: Well I think that's the problem actually. <laughs> there are no excuses. No it is good actually and it's it's time that where you can quite happily sit at home with uh, with a clear conscience but uh, but I think also but you do need to get out and about to give yourself a bit of inspiration and also the thing that's am finding really limiting is uh, is the ability to to research things like going to the national archive and stuff like that. Of course that's completely gone now so I'm sort of stuck with what you can find at home and and what you can buy in the way of books and things like that which I say I'm not complaining it's, it's great but um it would be nice. Well, it will be nice when it's all over and we're allowed out again, allowed out to play, as they say.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, now, Michael, you've written this fantastic new book called The Korean War uh, Sabres, MiGs, and Meteors, 1950 to 53, um, through Osprey Publishing. Now, before we get into the real kind of um, meat of the book, um, the Korean War, I, I suppose, is often referred to, isn't it, as the Forgotten War? I mean, not on this podcast, obviously, but um, <laughs> no, just a reminder. In a sense, it's you could say in a way it's a bit of a left field conflict to write a book about. Um, what what inspired you to do it?
0: Uh, well, it started actually a little while ago. I was researching a, a book that I did on the um, on the history of the RAF, and what I hadn't realised really until I started doing that was that. Um, I was aware that the Korean War had happened, and I, I was aware that there were no sort of fighter um, squadrons or anything involved in it from the R.F. perspective. But what I didn't realize was that a, quite a large number—I around about seventy um, individual aircrew, mainly pilots—were actually involved and, and flew combat missions with the Americans, few combat missions with the Australians. And it's when I started looking at that and researching it, um, I, kept, I thought, well oh, I, I, there's a book in this." I thought. Um, but when I floated the idea to uh, to the publishers, they said, "Well, that's a bit too niche, but we are interested because nobody's really done it before in a, in a big, you know, proper sort of comprehensive history of the of the whole conflict from, yeah, from there because again, I mean, as you say, it's a forgotten war, and if you try to read about it, it's actually quite difficult because books have been produced, but they tend to be very niche. They they, they tell the story from one side or the other. So you can read you can buy a book about the uh, American fighter squadrons and, and the USF, you can get a book about the US Navy." Um, if you hunt really hard, you can find one about the U.S. Marines. Um, there's one, I think, um, about uh, the North Korean Air Force. It's quite a thin book. Um, I found one about the, um, the Chinese Air Force. There are a few but not many about the Soviet Air Force. And again, not many people know that the Soviet Air Force was hugely involved in that. But there's no book that actually pulls all that together. And so basically, that's what I've done um, and, and as you mentioned, it's it's very much the, the the forgotten war. But when as you get into it, you realise it's actually fascinating. I mean, three years of, of a very hard fought conflict, but it um, it encompasses everything. And it, 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 I mean, I was going to say famously, but that's probably not the right word on a, on, a, on a forgotten war. But it does involve the first large scale you know air, um, air combat between jet aircrafts. But also, we've got things like B-29s carrying out carpet bombing and God knows what else. You've got um, F-80s, the first generation of of, of American fighters um, being replaced by Mustangs because the Mustang was was a better airplane, World War II vintage Mustang um, carrying out lots of um, air-to-ground missions. You've got um, F-84 Thunder jets coming in and um finding that they they, they couldn't keep up with, with with mig-15s and they were um, delegated to ground attack you've got carriers operating um off off the coasts of Korea and if you bear in mind that, that for the. US Navy they'd spent you know three years what it was fighting the the Japanese going from island to island this whole thing of, of actually a, a a carrier um being stationary out on the, uh, on the coast and then um, you know, using its aircraft effectively as an extra airfield was something completely alien to them. And yet, that's the way we do business now. So, so many of these aspects of the Korean War have actually um, you know, become the way that, that war occurred after that. It was very much a sort of trailblazing um, conflict from that perspective and certainly from the aerial perspective. So, there's so many strands to it. I mean, I mentioned the Soviet Air Force and the fact that not many people realized that the Soviets were involved um most uh, in fact even most of the um uh, US and uh, UN pilots believe that they're fighting the Chinese but they're actually fighting in, in men, uh, for the majority of the time the soviet air force uh, you know Rus- real real live russians in their in their mig 15s um, so again that's a, that's a fascinating aspect of it and um, the, the whole sort of night fighter thing as well which again you, you kind of don't think of but but once the, the mig 15s basically drove the b29s uh, the superfortresses uh, from the daylight skies they took up night bombing so of course the soviets then took up night fighting so then the uh, the us uh, w- were involved both both the well the, the marines and, and the navy as well as the us air force in putting night fighters over korea to fight the uh, the, yeah, the soviet night fighters so again there's a whole strand of of of, of um, night conflict as well as well night combat so there's just so much of it and so much of great interest to to, to uh, the aviation enthusiast really um and, and that's yeah so that's how it all started that's a very long answer to very short sure, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's all right
1: long answers that's what a podcast is here for <laughs> um, <laughs> um y- 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 let's just pick up on a couple of those things you mentioned that. Um, this was the first con- uh, conflict that features that kind of large scale, you know, jet versus jet com- combat, you know, yeah. lots of new tactics are kind of being tried out and validated. I mean, can you give us a bit more detail about what we learned about modern aerial warfare during this war?
0: Yeah. I think one, one of the first things that's. It almost sort of doesn't quite answer your question but but one of the really interesting things is that both sides on this conflict massively overclaimed the number of kills they got i mean that's probably the case of every single conflict but this particular one and um, I, I looked into that and, and it was interesting that uh, as, as to why that might be and it wasn't that people were lying it was that people um, were used to air combat between um between piston engine aircraft and piston engine airplane, most of them, um, well, any piston engine is a massively complex thing. There's lots of things going backwards and forwards and in and out. The jet engine, in uh, contrast, is very simple. It's just a, a basically a rotating shaft um, with a gas burner on it. Um, and so, if you have a rotating shaft with a gas burner on it, and you put a bullet through it, not a lot happens. If you have a massive um, reciprocating engine, put a bullet through it, it all comes to a grinding halt. So. To start with, um, the, the, you, you'd look at a, a, at a film and say, "Well, so that that scored hits, and therefore that must have shot it down, or must have killed the airplane." But frequently, it it didn't. It just made uh, big holes in it, like a collider and then the thing landed and was was patched up and, and was airborne again a little bit later. And indeed, that that's what happened on on, on the first um, supposed um, engagement between the MiG 15s and and. Um, I think it was actually an F-80 that supposedly shot one down. Um, uh, And the guy definitely did score some hits on it um including a bullet through i think one of the external fuel tanks which then started venting fuel so what the the the, the american pilot saw was his airplane suddenly plummeting down with smoke coming out the back and then it hit the ground and exploded what actually happened was the the, the soviet pilot thought well i better land this thing because i've got some hits dive down trailing a plume of, of of actual fuel vapor and there was a very heavy inversion layer so he got to the Uh, was getting just about to the top of the inversion layer, about some 10,000 feet, I guess, um, and punched off the um, external tank. So looking down on it, the American saw this silver airplane coming and then suddenly bits of silver f- flying away from it. And then the airplane disappeared. Of course, it went through the inversion layer, which you could, you know, which then covered up what was beneath. And there's the, um, he, he was convinced that he'd scored a kill, that he'd seen this airplane, um, plummet down with smoke coming out the of it and exploded as it hit the ground. And actually, what he'd seen was, it was an airplane descending very quickly so it could land, uh, and, and be repaired. Um, and, and the the Soviets themselves found that only about a quarter of the films which they assessed as being confirmed kills actually were confirmed kills. So, um, uh, and again, from the Soviet perspective, what, what, one of the things they found was that um, guys who were, who were used to fighting and practicing against other fighter airplanes coming across like a B-29, which is about three or four times the wingspan, were, at, were actually opening um, fire miles out of range. So, so that... If you were looking at, at, at that picture and the airplane was a um, was a Sabre, or let's say, then then you'd be scoring hits on it because you'd be at a certain range. But actually, when the airplane's the same size in the in the gun sight and it's four times as big, then you're actually <laughs> three or four times out of range. So, uh, so again, this is one one of the uh, one of the issues that people had was was claiming that they that they'd scored hits on things and and, and actually hadn't at all. Um, but yeah, the the whole um, uh, the, the the things that uh, that really came out of the conflict were the, the high speed of of jet um, jet aircraft, um, the massive closure rates, um, the massive amount of of, of G um, that you could pull as well. On you know, if, if you start up at forty or thousand feet, and these again the the combat the combats were much much higher than anything that had been done before in in, in the Second World War. Um, you know, entering combat up at, you know, forty or fifty thousand feet. Um, but if you then go into a maximum rate turn and start descending, you can you you can go down and pull an awful lot of G force, um, which wasn't the case probably on, on on a on a a less powerful piston aircraft. So um all, all, all things like G-suits became important, which, the, which was fitted to American aircraft, but actually not to the MiG-15. So again, there was a massive issue of fatigue for, uh, for the Soviet pilots um, in terms of uh, coming back from combat, having pulled lots of G and then therefore being physically you know, very, very tired. Um, the formations, uh, you know, the, the, um, the tactical formation changed into uh, f- from... Um, yeah, the rather more welded wing of the Second War into something much more flexible and fluid to take into account the, the fact that um, you know, had much, much faster airplanes, that uh, you, you had to see people from further away in order to, uh, to, to counter them or to attack them. Um, so the, these are all um, aspects of, of air combat that, that, um, that we take almost for granted these days, but we actually you know, were first come across back in the days of, of the Korean War.
1: It was also um, it was the first war fought by the uh, newly independent U.S. Air Force, wasn't it? And it was a conflict. Actually, when you look into it, you know I think you mentioned nine countries' air forces were involved, uh, weren't they? And an incredible number of you know quite sort of famous aircraft were involved weren't they you had you know meteors you know f86 sabers thunderjets mustangs you know shooting stars as you mentioned the list the list goes on it was an actually incredible number wasn't it
0: yeah it was actually i think i i, I did a, i tossed it up a, a number the other day and, and i came up to about sort of uh, about twenty five i think different different sorts um and that that's discounting um sort of many of the helicopters the transport aircraft um is you know, hel- helicopter another interesting um a feature which, or aspect which i haven't really covered in, in great detail but uh, but for, you know the first time the helicopter came of use and uh, again widespread use um as as a rescue platform as as a transport platform for inserting troops and and, and things but yeah there, there's an enormous number of aircraft and, and the, the carrier aircraft as well um Bought Corsairs, um, Sky Raiders have uh, you know, seen their uh, their operational debut, um, and the jet aircraft cougars and banshees operating off carriers uh, uh, as well. So uh, um, you know, as you say, a phenomenal sort of widespread of, uh, of of aircraft, you know, sea seafires uh, initially, sea furies from from the uh, operated by the Royal Navy and the Royal Australian Navy. Um so yeah, an incredibly wide range of of aircraft. Um, you know, a, a Sky Knight's another sort of night night fighter that, um, uh, that, you, know, that you kind of don't really think of, um, and, and indeed aircraft like the I, I did mention earlier on that the P fifty one or F fifty one Mustang, which um, w- which. Bizarrely, the um, uh, the U.S. Air Force um, squadrons that that were out in Japan at the end of the war were equipped with with, with the F eighty fighter, but they had to trade them in and, and go back to operating the uh, the Mustang um, because the Mustang had the range and and loiter capability, where uh, you know to to actually fly the distance and uh, and stay over the target, whereas uh, whereas the jet aircraft didn't because they didn't carry much fuel, so they had to go there you know, if, if they had the range, uh, drop a bomb and come straight back again. Yeah, I mean, a phenomenal number of, of, of aircraft. Um, B-29 is another one, which, which again, we've mentioned a couple of times already, but uh, had, had a massive, um, played a massive part in the war. So yeah, it is a, a fascinating number or litany of, of aircraft types.
1: If, if you know, when you, when you think about, you know, World War II, the Battle of Britain, you know, many people uh, who perhaps even aren't, you know necessarily historic aviation you know enthusiasts will still be quite familiar with you know it's the spitfire versus you know the messerschmitt isn't it there's there's you have that what what would you say was the the, the one of the kind of the key matchups if you like of the Korean war I mean would, would it have been like the you know the mig 15 against the sabre you know
0: what what yeah, th- what
1: were some of those key kind of battles between aircraft
0: yeah i think that's classically it isn't it it's, it's the mig 15 and the sabre two very very similar aircraft both in in and performance, um, and you know, classic. They did battle it out, slug it out in a very sort of Battle of Britain kind of way um, over the you know, Mig Alley, as it was called, the, the bit between the, the um, Yalu River and the Chongjin River. Um, that so, yeah, that's the bit that, that, that everyone thinks of, and, and, and that I think is classically the yeah the, the Korean War as as we think of it. Um, but again, the, whilst the uh, Sabre fought just the MiG-15. The MiG-15 was was basically there, the, the Soviet Air Force, to defend Chinese airspace and, and also just defend the northern bit of um, you know, the industrial heartland, as it were, of, of North Korea. So they were trying to keep um, the B-29s out, carrying out um, strategic bombing, trying to keep out the um, F-84s, which were were carrying out airstrikes against um yeah, sort of supplies and industrial factories and and, and all that sort of thing and, and indeed, airfields that were being built up in in North Korea as well. So the the, the MiG fifteen was uh, was up against pretty much everything really. Um, you know, including later on um, flying at night time and uh, and up against uh, things like the, the Sky Knight and the Starfire, both but two sort of uh, early American jet um, uh, jet night fighters um but, but probably most of the of, of the hard work was was actually was air air to ground stuff so so not particularly sort of sexy as it were in terms of um you know what 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 enthusiasts think of and, and as you say the classic sort of air combat thing but you know, mustangs f eighties f eighty fours all um, attacking um ground targets um the, the the sky raiders and corsairs operating off the carriers and doing similar things uh, cougars, banshees. So, so there was almost sort of two wars, really. This, this sort of um, dogfights going on up over the, um, in Mig Alley, and then further south, sort of um, across the whole of North Korea, really, a sort of air to ground offensive as the, um, as the UN uh, force attempted to, uh, to stop um, supplies and troops and reinforcements reaching, reaching the, the North Korean and the Chinese front lines. Um,
1: just a bit more detail about how the uh, the MiG fifteen and the Saber kind of matched up. What were the sort of real you know strengths and weaknesses of those um, of those two aircraft? Uh,
0: the, the, the they were both very well designed and um, sort of cutting edge at the time. And sweeping the wings back. I mean, it sounds obvious now, but um, uh, I mentioned earlier on sort of going into combat up at forty or fifty odd thousand feet, um, and that was possible because the aircraft had had swept wings, and therefore they weren't. Um, Adversely affected by compressibility, uh, which meant whereas the straight-winged aircraft like the F eighty-four was very very limited, uh, and also the Meteor actually were limited in speed and manoeuvrability at height that the um, the the Mig and the and the the Sabre were not Um, strengths. The Mig actually performed much better at high level. It had a much higher Ceiling than than the saber had, um, so it was able. Uh, and one of the comments made by by um, Saber so parts was at any stage the MIG could just almost roll its wings level and, and pull up, and it would always out climb and escape from from a saber, which then which just didn't have the oomph to to, to, to follow. Um, the um, it also had a very heavy armament. Um, it had a thirty seven mm cannon and uh, two uh, millimeter cannons, which are I mean twenty it's an anti-tank gun uh, um, because it was designed to, to take out aircraft like a B-29 and, and it was both its strength and its weakness, really, because um, the, the the cannon are very very slow firing. So uh, a, a, a MiG fifteen would get behind a Sabre and start firing, but because the, the rate of fire was so slow, um, the the, uh, the Sabre quite often sort of ended up flying between shells, as it were. So um, there are often stories of, of Sabre pilots looking behind and seeing the, the, this MiG, and you, they say you could actually see the individual flashes as the, as the shells came out, but um, were able to evade them. Um, The Sabre, on the other hand, had had six um, Browning 50 cal machine guns, which um, again, going back to the earlier point was ideal for for, for shooting at um, sort of old fashioned piston airplanes, but um, didn't really have the range or all the hitting power um, against other jet fighters. So, so again, you'd score perhaps lots of hits on a on a on a MiG fifteen, but um, just basically punch lots of holes through the the, the aluminium, would not do an awful lot of damage. Um, whereas a thirty-seven mm shell hitting a, a Sabre could would rip the wing off. So there were sort of pros and cons on on, on each side a, 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 about the you know, the armament that they had. Um, both were, I think, fairly evenly matched once they got turning. Um, the Sabre probably had the edge below about 20-odd thousand feet. Um, And uh, and again, as I mentioned earlier on, the fact that the pilot and the Sabre had had anti-G protection gave him an edge as well in terms of doing a really high G turn to to escape from a MiG. Uh, And again, there are stories of guys entering uh, combat up at 40,000, 50,000 feet and going to a sort of defensive spiral with somebody on their tail all the way down to to, to ground level. but, but able to, in, in the case of, of the saber, to actually keep pulling sort of five or six G all the way down, and uh, and eventually the you know the, the Soviet or perhaps Chinese type pilot behind would be, would be so fatigued that he couldn't do anything about it. Um, and by the time he got down to low level, then a there's hills to avoid, and, and, and b the saber probably had the edge on um, on turning performance. So. Um, there, there, there were actually quite, I mean, evenly matched airplanes in many respects. I mean, as I say, the, the Sabre with, with the edge at, 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 the, at the lower levels, the, the MiG-15 with the edge at, at the higher levels. Um, but, um, and again, a lot of the, um, be, because they were so so evenly matched, uh, um, James jabaro who was the first American ace, had reckoned he, he gave a, a, um, a lecture in um, at the, um, uh, the, the, the fighter and development school back in the UK in that 1952, he reckoned that the, the losses were equal on, on each side. That um, you know, for every Mig shot down, there was a Sabre shot down, and vice versa. Um, however, the um, one of the things that the Americans did was the or the US Air Force was that they they were not allowed into China, and, and, and the Mig 15 bases were all just over the border near Antung, uh, now now called Dandong um, in, in China, and they were allowed to cross the river Yalu um, in hot pursuit. Um, and some of them decided that hot pursuit went they wanted to go and shoot somebody. So quite a lot of the, of the kills later on in the war were, caught, were actually scored by um by USAF pilots who, who would then go across and just fl- fly a, a patrol overhead the the Chinese uh, or um, Soviet airfields and uh, uh, attack the MiG-15s as they came into land or as they took off. So again, that's when when you look at the way that, that losses were incurred, it didn't necessarily it wasn't necessarily from a what you might call an even combat, as it were. Um, I say an even combat, very very even um, results outcomes. Um, but a little bit of, I wouldn't say cheating because it's probably, uh, it's actually a very effective way to use the aircraft. But um, but yeah, certainly later on the, um, the Americans decided that they would actually, um, you know, get, kill, kill the MiGs while while they were vulnerable, as it were, in, in, you know, close to the airfields.
1: It was a war that, you know, caused a colossal amount of devastation, wasn't it?
0: It was, yeah. I, I've seen, I haven't been able to, to confirm the statistic, but, but I did see written down somewhere that more bombs were dropped um on North Korea in the um, in the three years of, of, of conflict during the war than, than had been dropped on the whole of, uh, of Germany during the whole of World War Two, which is quite a statistic, really, when you think of the amount of effort that went into the bomber offensive against Germany. So, yeah, they, they reckon that, that more bombs were dropped on North Korea. So it was absolutely yeah, absolutely devastating, really. Um, uh, uh, um, and very you know, destructive in terms of um in terms of human life as well um you know the the chinese were heavily involved in in the ground campaign and uh, again they, they they operated the the human wave system where you might have a platoon of 30 guys with maybe 10 weapons and um Everybody charged forward, and if somebody with the weapon fell over, then somebody who didn't, everyone picked it up and carried on going. So a massive um, uh, you know, kills and that, and and again going on to the unpleasantness of it, use of things like napalm and that against against mass um, mass troops because that that was the way that you could get rid of you know a vast number of people that you, that you needed to do to to stop an advance or a, a charge like that.
1: I don't know, uh, you know how uh, again. You talk about you know stats being independently verified, but um, yes. <laughs> you know somewhere in the region of you know thirty two and a half thousand tons of napalm. Used. That's frightening,
0: isn't
1: it? Yeah, it is. It is frightening, isn't it? When you when you kind of start you know looking into that, I mean, I think it was um, the U.S. Air Force General was it Curtis Lemay was saying basically sort of saying they you know. We went over there, fought the war, and eventually burned down every town in North Korea. Anyway, somewhere or another, um, they reckon Pyongyang had, you know, 75% of that was destroyed. Yeah. It is, it's, it's quite difficult to get your head around that, isn't it? It
0: is, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's, um, it, it is just amazing, really, how, how much of it was just completely flattened and. Um, again if you think that b b fifty twos sorry b b twenty nines are probably not the most accurate um you know dro- dropping from you know, 20, know old thousand feet you know dropping a stick of bombs you, you know it's, it's fairly indiscriminate what it's gonna um what it's gonna take out um but and i think one of the things also was that was that um certainly at one stage they 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 decided they would Flatten every village where they thought there might be um, either Korean People's Army or, or the Chinese um, army, either stores or people. Or so you can imagine that probably covers most of uh, you know, most of the villages in North Korea. Um, as you say, systematically flattened. Um, and again, the number of aircraft that will go off on on interdiction missions or or on armed reconnaissance missions. Um, and. Uh, the, you, know, you you went out and if you saw something you you bombed it or shot it um so when all, all the um you know locomotives and and vehicles um bridges um i think virtually every bridge in north korea was taken down um i mean the the, the amazing thing was that the uh, the Koreans and Chinese very quickly um put up sort of um repairs but um yeah i think i think hard, hardly a bridge was left standing at the end of it all. it's, uh, it's quite amazing really
1: yeah, they, they they kind of ran out of things to bomb, didn't they? Well, they um, did, really, yeah. Um, in, in a way. But, um,
0: but, but often they were going back to the same targets because they, they'd bomb it on one day and then the next day, the, the, you know, a, a bridge had been bombed and the, there'd be a sort of, a, a, you know, a, a wooden bridge built next to it carrying the road or the railway and it was back and running again. And that that was the thing that um, that defeated the whole sort of interdiction campaign, really, was, was how quickly and how ingeniously um, the Chinese North Koreans repaired things. Uh, so, you know, th- uh, a vast amount of effort were going to try and t- t- to stop them moving. But they were so ingenious in, in, in terms of getting around the problems and, and, and solving them that uh, the interdiction campaign achieved very little, really, in, um, other than, as you say, ending up with most of the towns, cities, and bridges in, uh, in North Korea completely flattened.
1: The final thing I'd like to touch on with you, Michael, is – I suppose when we think of North Korea today, you know, we, uh, from the West's perspective, we look at it in, you know, in a very particular way, don't we? It's a, yeah. it's a sort of far-fung, slightly, you know, um, insane regime, and <laughs> in, you know, you know, and we, you know, we have that opinion, that you know, with very, with very good reason, obviously. But when you look back into this, this, this conflict now, as it stands today. Most people in North Korea will have some relative who would have known someone who died or was affected by that conflict, won't they? And you know, when when you know half of your country is kind of wiped out, that that thing kind of stays, doesn't it, for for generations? I mean, how how do you think that the Korean War has 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 shaped you know modern politics um, in terms
0: of North Korea? Yeah, I, th- I think it has uh, has done completely. Really, um, that I mean, uh, you, you do have to bear in mind that it was the North Koreans who invaded the South and very nearly succeeded in uh, in, in unifying all of Korea, which which was their aim, um, and also that both the, yeah, North and South Korea were effectively. Um, I'd say set up by by the Soviets and, and and the um and the United States at the end of the, of the war, um each it, it put their own sort of puppet government in, in place and, and, and each one claimed the other. So we, each of the of the um, regimes claimed to be the the sole um, legal um, government of the whole of Korea. So um, from that perspective, but I mean both sides do still look for a unified Korea. Um, but 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 again the. the um, each of them seems to think that, that they alone are, are the um, are, are, are the legal um, government, um, uh, and indeed the war never formally finished. It's still um, an armistice. It's still a ceasefire. Um, and every now and then you do hear of things um, hotting up over the border, sort of occasional cross-border shooting incidents and, and things like that. So, so it, I think it, it, in the mind of probably. Even South Koreans as well, I think it, the, the war continues. So, so yes, it does shape absolutely everything, really. Um, but, yes, I, I think you're right. I think that, um, firstly, the North Koreans will do have a great antipathy um, probably to, towards um, – the west because although it was a united nations um fought war supposedly in, in relation in reality it was it was mainly american um although there were lots of other countries including our own um uh, involvement and yeah we, we said we said nine different countries or, or services in in the air war but i mean the ground the war had very much more um so yeah it, it, it's something that does um it it, it, it does exactly um you know, affect the way or, uh, you know, or the war has has led to the to, to the present um political situation really um and, it, and it's difficult from that perspective to see how it's um yeah how, how eventually it may be resolved if it ever is um but yes you're right it, it everything does go back to the, to this one you know the point that the korean war where it all went horribly wrong
1: Well, look, Michael, it's absolutely fascinating uh, to talk to you um, about about this 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 conflict. Um, I'll just remind people. I'll get the shameless plug in for the book again uh, at the end, Michael. That's all right. I'm going to do it right now. Uh, The Korean Air War by Michael Napier uh, out on the 18th of March through Osprey Publishing. How was that? See, I covered everything
0: there.
1: You did. Look, thanks very much for your time, Michael.
0: Yeah, very welcome. It's great to talk And, uh,
1: yeah, thank you very much for listening. Um, see you all again at the same time next week.
0: This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.